Episode number four with psychologist Dr. Courtney Cogburn. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. In today's episode, we chat with psychologist Dr. Courtney Cogburn. Hailing from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Dr. Cogburn's research focuses on how racism contributes to health disparities amongst Black Americans, and in particular, how over time, blatant and subtle racism in media stresses and literally wears down Black bodies, a phenomenon also known as weathering, something we are all witness to during the current outbreak of COVID-19 here in the United States and its devastating effects on communities of color. An associate professor at Columbia School of Social Work, Dr. Codburn's Racial Immersion VR Experience, A Thousand Cut Journey, debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2018. Developed in collaboration with the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University, it allows for the viewer to experience life as a black man from adolescence through adulthood and has been featured on TEDx, CBS, and Forbes. In this conversation, we discuss how many hours, yes, hours, of media the average American consumes every day. Spoiler alert, it's nine. Why higher education has health benefits for every demographic, except for those of African descent. The unexpected and surprising outcomes from her racial virtual reality research, and ways in which VR is being used to help black people begin to heal from a lifetime of racial stress. Given where we are as a country and as a people, I found this conversation to be right on time. You know, first of all, Courtney, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, So glad to have you. Um, We've known each other for a while and I've just been obsessed with your work. So before we kind of delve into your work, what is your superhero origin story? Like, where is Courtney from? How did this interest in psychology and sociology begin? I am from Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Yes, sir. Uh, Where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. Down the plane and (laughs) racism along with that. And, um, you know, I come from this really interesting family, this um, Oklahoma, I don't know if a lot of people know a lot about the history, I'm not surprised, but at one point, Oklahoma had more all-Black towns than any other state in the country. So we have a lot of black mayors, we have black rodeos, and my family's from one of these towns where my uncle, we weren't wealthy by any stretch, but he owned a lot of land. My family basically lived in this town. My cousin was the mayor. Um, Everyone in the town was basically my family. Uh, (laughs) So I grew up in this really um, warm, close, black, big family. that I think fundamentally shapes how I feel in the world and how I feel in my skin. Um, and although I left right after high school for college, um, I very much, that is the core of who, of who I am. Um, and as a small child, you think about like superhero, who, why am I who I am today? Um, both of my parents were educators, my mom especially just really 
supported me and lifted me up and made me feel like I was the most special person on the planet, not better than anybody, but special on my own. And um, from early on, I was pretty precocious and curious about people and dynamics. And um, I also got into inventing pretty early on in life. So um, in second grade, I invented snow chains for bicycles. So you could ride your snow and ride your bike in snow and ice. And I was on this kid's show called The Dr. Fad Show. Um, Whoa. Competition for kids with their inventions and that sort of thing. Um, if anybody out there can find the footage of me on the show, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Um, so I was creative and inventing and thinking about these things from a very young age. And I think I'm just, you know, still doing that, basically. No, I love that. And, and what was it? particularly about people like and their interior lives when did that come into your your focus I feel like it's something that started really early on um but when it's most salient for me is high school and and part of what was happening then is I had um a few guy friends with whom I was very close and I remember their relationships with their fathers changing once we got to high school. So they were very close to their dads and it felt like more tension started to emerge in their relationships once they got into high school. And I don't think it was just them. It was probably happening for the girls as well. But I just remember with these friends in particular, it was salient for me. And I just wondered why. I wondered why now are you having these problems with your father that you've had for a very you know, close relationship with for a very long time. Um, I also started paying attention to uh, again, these same friends, I went to school with the same set of kids from about fifth grade all the way through high school. And this is a public school, but we all lived in the same neighborhoods. Um, and again, these same guy friends who were really good at math, were in, like the advanced classes, gifted classes with me, um, weren't taking those classes in high school. And, and I'm sitting in, you know, AP calculus or whatever, struggling, barely functioning right in this class know they're better at math than I am I know they're scoring off the charts on their standardized tests like the tests we have to take but they're they feel like they're getting away with something by taking these other classes no adult is intervening and saying why aren't you in these other classes so I never commented on that these are but these are things I remember thinking as as a high schooler um and also like I remember having really clear reflections for myself around identity um, and who am I. Um, in high school, I was a cheerleader, captain of the cheerleading squad, dated the captain of the football team, like ultimate cliche in some ways. Um, but I was also like president of the French club and you know, all this other kinds of stuff. And I remember I was, I I, I was part of this popular crowd um, and I remember stopping in the hallway, I think it was my junior year, maybe my senior year, and I remember stopping and saying out loud to myself, who am I? Like, who, what is this performance I'm doing? And I know it sounds weird for it to happen that early, but I was clear, like, what am I doing? Who am, like, who are these people I'm trying to be? And like, it was just this moment of clarity. Um, and so all of that is psychology, right? All of that is, and sociology and lots of other stuff, but all of it is humans 
paying attention to myself as a human, paying attention to dynamics between humans, paying attention to the other humans in my life, our behaviors, our identities. Um, all of that was always really interesting to me. Um, and uh, in my junior year, I decided I wanted to study psychology and that I wanted a PhD. And here we are. Amazing, amazing. And you went on to get your PhD, was it at Harvard? Uh, Michigan. I Michigan. My, my postdoc was at Harvard, but yeah. I did, ah, okay, no. okay, yeah. okay, Post-PhD was at Harvard, but the PhD was from University of Michigan. Okay, wow. And when in your studies, mm, I shouldn't even say in your studies, but, you know, t- tell me about that journey coming out of school, so coming through the educational period into practicum, like into being into the real world and doing real research. What was that path like, that journey? You know, for me, for especially a psychologist, um, those are very interwoven. You're expected to, to start doing independent research very early on. Um, I, I led my first independent research project as a second year in college, um, the equivalent of sophomore. I went to the University of Virginia. We say second year, first year, sophomore. Um, but so as a psychology, as a psychology person intending to get a PhD, you start doing independent research very quickly. Um, so I've been doing that for a long time, which is so fascinating, right? To take these personal thoughts that I'm having about myself and people in the world and translating that into research. Um, and it's at the same time fascinating as it is incredibly frustrating because research will never capture the complexity of human life um right it's just we don't have the methods to and in qualitative and ethnographic and uh, the humanities get much closer at representing the richness of of what human life and human behavior is but um uh the the types of methods that i use quantitative methods uh don't come close to actually representing what I think is actually going on. Um, so it's fascinating and frustrating at the same time. And and when in your research did you pivot to studying Black people in particular? I don't know if that came from the very beginning, but then also at what point did you really start to see like, there are major issues here um, from a psychological standpoint, from like a weathering standpoint that I need to really zero in on? Yeah. So I've always studied Black people, um, and I've been quite fortunate, right, to have Black professors studying Black people who were able to guide me at nearly every step along the way. And I I certainly worked in other areas also. But when I first started, I was focused on Black people trying to navigate white spaces. So particularly Black people attending uh, predominantly white institutions. So, and focusing specifically on academic outcomes. And what I started to realize is the academic outcome is just one small piece of what's being affected by these things. And I just wasn't really satisfied that I was capturing the threats that are creating these outcomes and that education was the only outcome that mattered. and that psychology and the methods of psychology. Um, so psychology as a discipline is very narrow and focused. People develop work in a really narrow area of research and you really try and isolate, does this variable affect that variable? And you're trying to isolate this effect. 
but like we life is not like that it's not you know bad input here good or bad output there life is much more complicated so i was dissatisfied with what i was using and so when i finished my undergrad degree even though i was still planning to get a phd i did an msw next so after i finished college i went and got a master's in social work um, because I wanted to complicate the picture a little bit more. I wanted to complicate my understanding of what is life doing to and for Black people. And psychology wasn't really going to give me that, um, which is why I, I, I got engaged with, with social work. Um, but it wasn't until the end of my doctoral program that I really started to move away from looking at educational outcomes and mental health, not away from, but adding to and thinking about what became clear to me is that we are not always aware of the ways we're being affected by racism. And most of the methods that I was relying on require you to report to me what you've seen in terms of racism. Tell me what you've experienced. And then I'm assessing what effect that that's had on you. But I started to get the sense, and this is why I'm now in media and cultural because my understanding started to evolve such that racism is in the air. We breathe it in and out with or without consciousness. It is automatic. So what effect does that have? And you might not be able to tell me that you just breathe in or breathe out, right? You just, you're just breathing. Um, so how do I measure that? And how do I account for the effects of that on our bodies and our mental health and our physical health? Um, so that's what my postdoc was for, was to help me figure out how do I measure that? How do I get a sense of that? So that's sort of the evolution of, of my scholarship. And could you explain to us a bit about your methodology in, in gathering that research? I, I found that to be super interesting. Um, just one, how you analyzed the media effects of racism on both white people and black people yeah. and you know particularly as it relates to like blatant racism and subtle racism could yeah. you talk a bit about that yeah sure so right so i'm entering this space where i'm like racism's in the air how do you measure the air right <laughs> in this way so where i landed was thinking about media the ways in which we might passively come across these stories in your newsfeed, as we were talking about earlier. Um, so what I did was create these, it's a longer process, but we ultimately created um, blogs, um, media content that you were looking at, and we were manipulating what types of images you were seeing that were embedded with, with other news stories. So if you picture a blog that has three news stories, one of those stories, the one that's most prominent, will be a racial story. And when you're coming into the study and consuming that content, you don't know the study has anything to do with race. So we're just interested in how you react when you see a story like that, right? You weren't expecting to see it. Um, and so people were randomly assigned in an experiment to see all neutral images like, oh, how to pick the best melon in the grocery store or what to read during your commute to blatant racist content. So one of the images would say, you know, some teens in blackface, you know, using the N-word or something like that. Or you could have seen subtle imagery. At the time, it was a, a congressperson referring to President Obama as a drug dealer of welfare. Um, mm -hmm. Coded language, but not referencing race, not saying black, um, but using racially coded language. And so we compared when people are exposed to these different, this different kind of content, what, what are we observing physiologically, emotionally, and behaviorally. So physiologically, we were looking at 
things like heart rate and blood pressure. Um, emotionally, we're looking at your, your self-report of affect. How do you feel having seen this? Um, and then behaviorally, it was interesting because we gave people a bowl of M&Ms and just said, oh, this is just a snack to go with the study because it's a long study, but we actually measured how much you ate. So we weighed the bowl before and after to see how much people ate. Wow, cool. Yeah, I got that from another, another scholar at uh, UC San Francisco, but, um, but we were trying to get a sense of what are the ways that stress is showing up, right? And they may look different across these different indicators. And generally what we see is that for Blacks, the blatant content is like par for the course. You react, you see it, but once that stimulus is gone, you're back to baseline where you started, you know, regulating fine in response to that content. When the content is subtle, Black people are really dysregulated in terms of heart rate variability. They, they're not regulating their stress response very well as they're consuming that content, which is fascinating because consistently people would say in that condition, oh, I've seen that before, that's not a big deal. I see that sort of thing all the time. But their bodies were responding in a really different, um, different way. Um, and the opposite was true for whites. So whites in the explicit condition were dysregulated and not handling that well. Um, and in the subtle condition, it was almost as if they weren't noticing that they were seeing anything racial. And then with the behavioral outcome, the eating, we see a difference with Blacks, but not in the direction we expected. I was expecting stress eating. I was expecting, you're stressed, you're gonna eat more. What we found is that Black people ate less when they were in either the blatant or the subtle race condition. So there was a suppression of, of appetite. Um, and what I realized when I dug into, I don't know if you're if listening, interested in this at all, but what I realized when I dug into this is different types of negative emotion can elicit different eating responses. So anger and frustration and sadness are not the same negative emotion and they might relate to different kinds of outcomes. Um, no, tell us all about that. I, that's so super fascinating. Please. Yeah, so like, you know, if, if and, and the, the literature is still a little bit murky, but sadness might be associated with uh, suppression or anger and anxiety might be associated with activation and eating more, right? Um, so it's, it was unclear because of the way we measured affect, it was unclear which emotion was dominant. So we don't have a sense of, was it anger? Was it anxiety that was associated with this eating outcome that we were seeing or, you know, we don't know, but um, fascinating because the, my naive assumption going in is when you're stressed, you eat more. And that's just not what we, what we saw. That's interesting. And to kind of pull it back to something we were speaking about before we started recording was about this current moment that we're experiencing now in the U.S. And how do you feel like the work that you've done and that you continue to do relates to what's happening now with, you know, the riots and the protests uh, around, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and the continuing, the continuing list? Yeah, you know, I see my work, me fitting in, in in two ways. One is understanding exposure to racism as a stressor that has effects on your health. And whether you're conscious of that or not conscious, the effect is probably still there. So the consumption of media and exposure to racism through the media is something that we don't fully understand yet. The study that I just described to you is one of the few that have tried to assess this. 
when we think about the effects of racism on health, and there's a broad literature on this, we're really thinking about, you told me you were discriminated against. You said, this is how often I've been followed in a store. This is how often I've been called a name. I lost my job because of my race, those sorts of things, which are major and have, they're really bad for your health across the board. But what we don't have a sense of, of how all this other stuff, the stress of being a black body in this world, feels and does to your body. We don't, we haven't had a really captured that. So my work is attempting to capture yet another slice of racism and trying to understand effects on health. The other piece of my work that's related to the virtual reality project is really trying to get a sense of how do I better help the broad public and white liberals in particular think more competently about structural racism? How can I help them better understand what racism is and how it functions in society? And I'll say this, that represents a real tension for me because most of my career has been focused on Black people, understanding Black people, how do Black people thrive, how, do, how are we um, getting by, right, in spite of all of these threats on our lives. And my virtual reality work is my first foray into speaking to white people directly. I think it's important. I think they need to be held accountable in our discussions of racism and our action around racism. Whiteness is core to everything that, that we're talking about. But spending my energy, time, and resources and money to study white people is a tension for me. But I do think it matters. And, you know, I'll keep doing it. That's actually a, a beautiful segue. So your VR project, A Thousand Cut Journey, I actually experienced there at Columbia. And it was really eye-opening for me mm -hmm. because I've actually never... I've actually never been stopped and frisked yeah. by police. Mm -hmm. um, my relationship with police officers has always been one of that's who I go to when I need help, you know, if I'm lost, you know, things like that. Awesome. And what that experience did for me and I think you can speak better to this switching from reason to empathy and the ways in which it felt to be on your hands and knees with your hands in the air like what the body itself feels in those moments of of, of not feeling like you're in control could you speak a little bit about the transition from your media studies to recognizing that technology and design could be a pathway to achieving what you were trying to 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 measure yeah i think my media and health work helped me understand one just how substantial media use is and two really helped me understand the power of narrative in symbolism, in story, in a way that was not part of my training as a psychologist and not a part of my training um, in social work or, or education either. So once I started to really connect with that, I think I knew that, but I hadn't really connected with the power of story, the power of narrative. Um, and so I think once I really started to connect with that, I wanted to think about, well, how do I use this then? Not, not studying it only as a threat. How do I use it as a tool? How do I go on offense using the power of story? Not being a storyteller necessarily, not being trained in that way at all, but starting to think about how do I use this to help people engage and understand and feel differently in response to these kinds of experiences, which led me to VR. Can I create an experience where you walk in someone's shoes 
that make this so undeniable. So in creating this experience where you're stepping into the digital shoes of a black male as a child, adolescent, as an adult, having these different kinds of experiences. Um, and what we know and understand about immersive digital VR, immersive, being a part of an immersive environment is when you have to use your body, you connect with that virtual body more. Having to use your physical body connects you to the virtual body more. So getting down on your knees and putting your hands up or grabbing a cell phone or throwing a basketball, all of those things are integrated so that you feel more connected to this body. But one thing that consistently happens that I didn't expect is white people saying their whiteness is more salient to them because they've become a black man. They aren't losing themselves. They are becoming very clear how different their lives are while they're embodying this black male body. And that just, <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> like flesh that out for us a little bit more. Like, like people say like, I know I'm supposed to be this black man. You see yourself in a mirror. You're, you're moving this body around. People are talking to you, reacting to you as a black man. That's the intention, right? We want you to feel like a black man as much as we can in this environment. And consistently people say to me, I know that's happening and I'm seeing this through this person's eyes, but I'm not becoming them. I'm still myself. It's like I'm standing in the shell of a person. I'm almost hyper-conscious about my own body and whiteness, even though I'm seeing something through this Black man's eyes. And I'm still unpacking that. And that, that, that's another example of how empirically, I don't know how to measure that. Methodologically, I have no idea how to capture that. That's happening. Don't know how to measure, you know, measure that to report how consistent is it, for whom is it happening. Um, but that sort of thing has just been fascinating to me that, yeah, in a way that I'm still trying to unpack. You know, that that's that's interesting to me. You know, I, of course, I have no conclusions, but interesting to me to think about how we have these other games like Fortnite, mm -hmm. where people are very much used to avatars yeah. and putting on skins yeah, yeah, and yeah. behaving, you know, in these spaces yeah. and this inability or this 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 physiological dissonance yeah. that white people have in this particular VR experience, that this yeah. is a skin that they can't quite inhabit that they yeah. were very much aware yeah. uh, of their distance from it. Yeah, yeah. And not even in a rejection kind of way, not distance, but coming to consciousness about whiteness. I haven't thought much about being a white person, right? That's what, what someone is saying. And you forced me because you made me Black which is not what I designed, right? <laughs> I didn't go in thinking that's what I'm trying to do, you know? So it's, it's complicated and fascinating. And with VR, we're only beginning to understand what we're doing to people when we put them in these experiences. And so games like Fortnite and um, a friend of mine was the founder of Second Life, which is a big game where people like created worlds and lives and put on skins and, you know, were different people. And he's talked about fascinating dynamics where there was a white character in Second Life, one of the most popular figures in the game, would host these parties, everyone would come. And the person who was behind the avatar did an interview and it was a black woman. And it, like people were real confused about themselves because they were attracted to and drawn to this woman who in the game was blonde and white and this black woman. And so when she did this, and she wasn't hiding it, so she did this interview 
and people were real messed up about like what that meant and their interactions. But VR is a whole nother thing where you're walking around, like you're, you're embodying this character in a completely different way. Whoa. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's take a step back. Um, could you explain to us a bit about the Thousand Cut Journey? Like what actually happens? Yeah. So in a Thousand Cut Journey, you become a Black male named Michael Sterling. And you start off in a mirror and you see yourself as a small Black boy. You have small brown hands. You can move the hands and you see yourself in a mirror. You can move the head and to some degree you can move the body around as well. Um, you get a little bit of information about who you are. And in the first scene, you go into um, your classroom, an elementary school classroom, and there's some colorful blocks in front of you that you can grab and play with. And there are, you're the only black child in this space, the only black person in this space. And there are some other kids playing with blocks and they start to kind of taunt you and say, Michael, throw the fireballs, throw the scary black fireballs. Black is always the scariest. So what we're trying to do there is incorporating how early racialized racist language gets utilized by children, even if they don't understand what they're doing or what it means necessarily. Um, and we essentially goad you into throwing the, the block and people usually throw the block at the kid who says scary black fireball, like they deliberately aim at his head. Um, when you do that, it triggers a white female teacher who says, Michael, you're being dangerous, you're going to hurt someone. So even though the other kids are throwing blocks, you're the one who gets in trouble when you throw the block. And it's important to note that that's based on an empirical literature in education around disciplinary practices in classrooms where we know black boys and black girls get disciplined more harshly for the same behaviors. They're disciplined, they're more likely to be expelled, they're more likely to be suspended, not because they are behaving more badly than anyone else, it's that they are seen as behaving more badly than, than other mm. um, And that's a consistent pattern. It's this whole discussion around, you know, um, the, the, the school to prison pipeline, the preschool to prison pipeline, where black children are seen as more dangerous very, very early on. Um, you then see yourself in a mirror again, you're older, you're an adolescent, you're in your teen bedroom and you can play around with things and you end up downstairs in a living room with your mother and a white friend who's waiting to go to a basketball game with you. And your mother's watching the news and says, uh, Michael, you need to change. The police are looking for someone who's dressed similarly to you. Your white friend kind of resists this and says it's not a big deal. He's very kind of clueless about the significance of what your mother is saying. And, she, and your mother says, don't forget what happened to your brother. So in this moment, we're capturing a black mother's vigilance of having to worry what t-shirt her child is wearing when he leaves the house. And this reference to this being in this family, something like this in relation to the police has happened in this family before. And the scene that you reference where you're eventually outside and you're, the police come and you're just standing on the sidewalk and they're yelling at you and tell you to get down on your knees and put your hands up. There's a moment, I don't know if you remember, where the lights go out and the sound gets quiet and you just hear your mother's voice saying, do what you have to do to get home alive. And again, it's a reference to this socialization around minimizing your threat to other people so that you can survive. Um, there's other things that happen, but in the third scene, you're a young adult, you're applying for a position in what looks to be a very nice firm of some sort. And um, the person you're, that's interviewing goes directly to the white candidate that's sitting there with you and says, oh, you must be our candidate from Yale. We're so excited to meet you. 
you know from handing in your resume earlier that you're actually the candidate from, from Yale. And he just assumed that the candidate from Yale was this white guy. Um, the white guy's actually from a school, uh, Michigan State, which is a dig because I went to the University of Michigan. <laughs> and, uh, but we, what we wanted to achieve in that moment was you feeling invisible and dismissed. And it was really difficult to capture the absence of something, right? It's one mm -hmm. thing for police to yell at you. It's another to make you feel not there and not seen. Um, but I think we accomplished that pretty, pretty nicely. Um, and then at the end, you, you hear my voice trying to give some context to, you know, what, you, what you've seen. Um, and really the intent is just to convey that these are experiences that start very early on in life. They carry with you across your life course. And it's not just the police. It's not just school. It's every sector of society with, with which we interact. Um, and it's just trying to convey some of that the structural nature of racism and also some of the subtleties that are really hard to describe to someone. It's really difficult to explain what it feels like to be dismissed. And it's really difficult to convey how clearly you know it was about race. An example I give or have given is when I was at Harvard and I was uh, rushing to catch the shuttle to go to another part of campus that was about to pull off and I rush up just before it pulls off and the driver hesitates to open the door. And it's a split second, right? But he hesitated. And as soon as I, he opened the doors and he kind of grimaced and said, do you have, your, do you have an ID? Because you have to be a Harvard affiliate to write. And I already have it out. We always show the ID and we get on. But he didn't think I belong there, right? And in that, that's hard to convey to someone. Someone could come up with a million explanations for why he acted that way. But I know what that was. And in the VR, I think the point is trying to capture some of those subtle moments and really try to convey to people, it might be a microaggression, but it's not small. And so what was that process like, like, like nuts and bolts, like you are doing your own research, you want to explore this idea of VR, but you are not a computer programmer at all. At all. And so what was that like? Like, what was that like, um, you know, gathering a team, gathering, you know, financing? I'm sure this was not inexpensive. Like, what did that look like? So, like, to give people the full scope, I had never used VR when I wrote the proposal to fund this project. Not in any shape, not on my phone, not a 360 video, nothing. But I had this idea, and I thought it was interesting. And I um, reached out to a professor at Stanford who I found on the interwebs and saw that he worked in virtual reality and just asked, I sent a message and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in working on this project around racism and VR, you know, would you be interested in working together? He responded fairly quickly, I was surprised. Um, and at the time I didn't realize what a big deal he was in this space. He's a very senior, well-known person in, VR. Um, and I had no idea. I was just like, hey, you guy, you know, you want to work on this together. We had a conversation. We clicked. We felt like we had some, some synergy going. So I wrote the proposal. He filled in the technical pieces around, this is what VR is, and this is how we would use it. Because again, I had no idea. Um, and we applied for funding through something called a MAGIC grant at the Brown Institute for Media Innovation. So it's based here at the Columbia School of Journalism. 
They also have an institute at Stanford, which is why I reached out to a professor at Stanford. And these grants are intended to fund big ideas, big ideas that are changing the way that we tell stories, um, the way that we capture what's happening in our, in our worlds. And so we got the funding, amazingly, because another part, nuts and bolts, is I took a very transdisciplinary approach to this project. And what that means is I didn't just consult with a VR person or consult with a computer scientist. I wanted us to integrate our knowledge together to create something new together. It's a it's, it's really different thing um, than I have an idea, go make it happen, right? I'll hand it off to you and you go make it. Um, it's really saying what matters, what should we do? Should we do this? Should we try that? No, let's pull back. Let's try this. That works. Okay. Right. It's, it's a back and forth constant kind of integration of our mutual understandings in order to create a piece. So that's what I call transdisciplinary. But when you're doing that, that means you rely on the team at the table to help you produce the thing. So I'm asking for funding for something that I don't actually know what I'm going to make. I just have an idea. Right. And I like I reference a couple of things that we could do, but I don't know what we're going to make. I'm saying invest in this process that will help us discover the best way to do this. And the best way to do this won't come from my head only. It will come from pulling this team together and discovering the best idea. Right. Collectively. Um, and they bought that. <laughs> they gave us the money um, for this. Uh, and our first grant for this was $250,000. So expensive to do this kind of work right now. Um, and they ended up giving us more funding later to do the project that we're working on right now. Um, so not a likely story, not a common story in terms of being able to, to do this kind of work or go from a complete zero in terms of familiarity with the technology and then emerge as a person who's considered to have expertise in the area now because I made this thing is just pretty astounding. And how long did it take? Like how long did this process take from from ideation to, you know, maybe just a prototype? It took a year to do the version that you that you experienced that took a year. Mm -hmm. um, and the funding that we received is intended for you to get this done in a year. Um, so in addition to the funding, they try to connect you with other resources to be supportive, to get the project done, but they want the product at the end of the year. So I would say in the last three months, we pulled it, we really pulled it together. Um, but we really did, we spent the first six months just on narrative, just on story and what matters and is this authentic? Is this reductive? Are we oversimplifying this? Does this feel silly? Does this feel gamified? Um, we consulted with artists and filmmakers and technologists of various sorts just to see what they thought about what we were doing, even before we even shot anything, just on our storyboards and our ideas, um, and then continued to pull those people in all along the way as well. Um, and it turned into a whole thing that, again, I didn't understand the technology. I didn't know what I was doing. And... We had to like hire a director and a producer to like shoot actors on green screen. And I'm like on a set with my then two year old. I'm like, what is going on? You know, it was a lot. It was a lot more than a lot more involved than I thought it was going to be. I thought we would come up with the idea with this, this transdisciplinary team and we would hand it off to someone and they would go make the thing that we came up with. And that 
just, it was, you know, I had to be involved every step along the way. Um, and, and so what were some of the biggest lessons you learned just in this process, you know, even if about yourself? Um, I think the biggest lessons we learned, and this, it's a privilege to be able to be in this position, but to scrap something that's not working, um, that we created scenes, had started shooting things, and there, were, there was just points where we had to accept that it wasn't it, that it wasn't doing what we wanted it to do, that um, it was better suited for 2D than what you use VR for. Um, so one of the biggest lessons was being willing to walk away from something that you invested a lot in um, mm. creating. And that's very difficult uh, to do because I could have landed at that point for the whole project. I could have decided that representing racism in VR is not the way to go. And would I have been willing, right, to walk away from this project if that had been the case? Um, fortunately, I didn't, I wasn't faced with that particular dilemma, but being willing to walk away when something's not working, I think is one of the biggest lessons. And also, you know, taking a gamble on this transdisciplinary process is um, a place of, coming from a place of humility, right? It's accept mm -hmm. that I'm good at what I'm good at. I know what I know, but I don't know all the things to tackle this really big, complicated undertaking, right? It needs multiple per personalities, expertise, backgrounds, perspectives, et cetera, to really start to get at all the moving parts of this. And that was absolutely true. Um, I'd never done a project like this with that type of mix of people at the table. And we just not, we wouldn't have landed on this thing if those people had not been at the table with me. And so in, in, in this process, and maybe even in your own career, what do you feel has been your biggest failure? And what was the takeaway or how did you reframe it? Or if you could reframe it? I think my biggest failure, and that's such a hard word to, to accept. Um, <laughs> I think my biggest failure is I think I talked about earlier, right, how slow I am at disseminating knowledge. So organizing all that I've learned and I'm learning and putting it into writing so other people can use it and benefit from it. And that's both from an academic perspective and, you know, generally. And, you know, I get ideas and I go and I do the thing and then I move on to the next thing and I don't always stop to share what I've learned with other people. And for me, that is, that is, that continues to come up as a failure, um, that I'm doing things other people haven't done before. And it would be nice to share that with other people who are, you know, moving into these spaces and doing this kind of work and related areas of work as well. So, um, I think that would be the biggest failure. And how is that shaping how you move forward? I'm trying to balance um, writing with doing, uh, other <laughs> types of doing. Um, I'd rather just be doing the doing. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'd rather be moving on to the doing and doing this thing and then that thing. And, but stopping to write about it, is, it feels like stopping to me. And so I'm actively pushing myself. Um, like today, I spent the morning writing and you know pushed all my meetings to the afternoon. And so I'm trying. I'm trying. And it's like, I'm on a tenure track position, right? That's part of how I'm evaluated is writing. So I need to pick it up. And you yourself have a young son, correct? I do. He's four now. And so how did his presence change and or shape how you're thinking about your work? 
You know, that's such an interesting question. And I remember the first and actually only time someone asked me about this, that I consciously started to realize how I had been approaching it. I mostly had to keep him at arm's length from this process. And anytime I tried to talk about him related to this work or integrate him consciously into what I'm doing, it's too painful. Like I, I, I'm almost barely able to function. The weight of what I'm doing and the implications for his life, be, you know, mm. into such view that it's, it's hard to breathe, right? Thinking about it. And when I first, the first big talk I gave about this work was a TEDx talk in Richmond. And it was before we had actually made anything, but I was talking about it. And I referenced him in that talk. And I remember the whole time thinking, you know, I'm a professor. I like, this is my mode when I'm talking and explaining things, but you start bringing in my baby into these conversations, that's a whole nother mode, right? And it was the first time that I tried to blend those two. I was talking about my research. I used a picture of my child at first and last time that I did that. It's too hard for me to, to blend those two. So he is everything. He is the reason why I do this work and I have to keep his presence separate from, from what I'm doing if I'm going to stand a chance at functioning and continuing to do the work. Because otherwise I'll say, forget all this and I will take my baby to a farm and, <laughs> you know, and move off the grid and, you know, start over. <laughs> do you have some kind of routine or methodology that helps create that barrier between, you know, your life with your son and the work that you're doing so that you can you know, fully function in one area and then also fully function in, a, in another? It's not a conscious thing. And like I said, until someone asked me that question, I didn't even realize I was doing it. It's a, it's a personality trait of mine that is, has its pros and cons, but I am really present focused. What I'm doing right now is what I'm thinking about and what I'm focused on. And I'm not thinking about the past and I'm not planning so much about the future even, right? I'm thinking, what do I have to do right now? And if he is not in my view, I'm able to, to funnel in and focus on that thing. You know, don't forget him. He's always there. But in, I'm focused on the task at hand. And um, that helps in terms of creating these boundaries. Because when I come home, I'm home. And I'm mom. And I'm focused. Um, and I'm, I try very much not to bring all of that stuff with me. Um, although those, especially now, those worlds are blending more and more. It's harder to create those boundaries when you're homeschooling, right? No, no, that's, a, that's amazing. And I actually want to circle a little bit, circle back to health. Um, I know in some of your research and, and some things you've previously spoken about, you speak about the ways in which um, education is a factor in the betterment of health for every other demographic except for black people. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit about that? I find that really, really interesting. Yeah, so um, globally, right? This is not even the United States. Globally, every year of education results in better health. Second grade to third grade, you finish second grade, you're, you're better off than the person who didn't finish second grade, right? It, it's incremental every step along the way, except for black people. And in some ways, like we just don't have the same, we don't get the same benefits of education that other people get. Um, 
And it was really striking to me. I had a colleague who was presenting because it's not the education and health work is not my work. It's, it's, I've, I've read it and I've seen other people present on it, but I had a colleague presenting and she was presenting this data on education. Um, I think it was education and mortality risk. So is your risk lower? You're, you live longer, the more education you have. And it was consistent, like, except for this little dot that was out there for black men. And she kind of like just went past it and didn't explain it. And I was like, hold up, what is this dot? You know, that, and this, this was in during my postdoc where I'm just getting into public health, population health. I'm like, what's going on with that dot? And the risk for black men, like they die faster than everybody you know, in spite of even when at higher levels of education, and it's not something that's explained by exposure to violence. It's just like, it's just this thing that happens. Um, black college educated women have the worst uh, maternal health outcomes than any other racial socioeconomic group in the country, right? We have uh, low birth, lower birth weights, premature birth, we're more likely to die as a result of childbirth. That's college educated black women specifically. Um, College-educated Black men have worse sleep patterns than any other group, um, and particularly men in, in certain professions. This suggests that, um, and then I think more broadly in terms of understanding health, that Black people die, we get diseases earlier, they progress faster, and we die sooner for the 15 leading causes of death. So if you take the 15 diseases that kill people, Black people consistently get those diseases sooner, earlier in life, have a faster progression of those diseases like cancer, and die faster. And this is independent of education, income, and quality of health insurance. So the gap between Blacks and whites decrease when you account for, okay, Black people who have more money are a little better off in education, better off, but there's still a gap. Comparing us to the same white, the white person with the same education, the same income, whatever, we will have diseases faster and we will die faster than our counterpart in the population. That's nuts. And that indicates to me that there's something about race in particular, that education is not going to fix it. Income is not going to necessarily fix it. And that does, that's not to say that we don't fix those things. We should absolutely fix those things. But we have this stress associated with being brown, being black, is killing us faster. Mm. It's, it's, it's taking a toll on our bodies. It's taking a toll on our health. You referenced weathering earlier, right? That if you think about a rubber band as being your stress response system, right? That even when I describe blacks in the explicit condition of my media study, right? That seen that before, regulate just fine. But having to do that over and over and over again, the rubber band wears out. And white people are not activated as much as we're activated in terms of having to use their stress response systems. We are constantly evaluating our landscape, evaluating dynamics. How am I being perceived? What am I saying? What am I doing? How am I dressed? What am I wearing? Is this person going to see me as a threat? This is just going to get coffee every day, all day, since we were five. <laughs> so like, Again, you take the VR piece and like this starts early and the media piece and just consuming media takes a toll on you. You start to add all this shit up. No wonder there's still a gap when you take education and income into consideration. No wonder we're still dying faster. Um, racism is deadly. 
Um, you think about Serena Williams and the problem she had with her pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, and even even when she had the blood clot um, mm-hmm. that her doctor said wasn't there, and she's like, "I know my body. I know my body." Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's just wow. a friend of mine was just, and I didn't even realize this was part of her story where she went into for a procedure and was yelling at a physician, the attending saying something is wrong, and basically had to have her husband discharge her from the hospital, take her to a different hospital where they saved her life. And if she had not left the hospital, the, the, the attending was not listening to her and walked out and stopped talking to her. So, you know, <laughs> and black people are, we, you know, we have healthcare data, right? That indicates that when we go into, this is not just Serena's story. We have empirical data documenting this across the healthcare system that we are less likely to be listened to, we're less likely to be believed, we're more likely to be treated with disdain, we're more likely even to be amputated because people are less willing to fight to save our limbs. Like the, the, the depths of this are, and when I talk to white people about their racism, they like to invest in this identity, they like to invest in this symbolic sense of self as being a good white person. I'm a good person, I'm not that racist over there, I would never do that, I would never say that. But the work that any of us would have to do to undo the air that we've all been breathing from birth, telling us who we are and our value and our worth, there's no white person on the planet that can come out of that passively and not be racist and not have some belief that I am not as good as you the conscious work and reading and effort that you would have to do to undo that. Most white people have never done. And your self-declaration as being a good person is completely insufficient in undoing all the shit you've been breathing since birth. That your parents tried to say, oh, we're just all humans. We're all, you know, colorblind. So not only have you been breathing this air, you've been socialized to not consciously process race and deal with race. So when you see black men in prison more than any other group and you've been told, I don't see color, what assumption are you making about the black men in prison? They must have just committed more crimes because race doesn't matter, right? You've passively come to these conclusions your entire life. And just being a good person does nothing for all of that. So when you then are a physician, having a black woman tell you who you have have passively assumed is inferior to you and couldn't possibly know more than you, couldn't possibly be smarter than you, telling you that you're wrong, maybe you don't listen. Maybe you don't see my body as being worth the extra fight. All of that adds up. (laughs) I am like (laughs) silenced. I had like three questions in my head and they just all went out the window. I mean, that is... It's 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 prolific. It's prolific. Um, how did how did you decide on the name the Thousand Cut Journey? I think I was thinking about the ancient torture technique of death by a thousand cuts, and was trying to convey that it's all of these things adding up. It's not the encounter with the police. It's the presence of the police in your community and what's happened to other people in your family and the narratives that get spun about people who look like you in the media, right? Those are multiple cuts. 
that are happening. It's not just the encounter you had with the police, it's all of this. And so A Thousand Cut for me was sort of representing the many slices that, that, that Black bodies take um, from very early on in life that, you know, slowly take its toll on, on our bodies. When was that pivot point when you realized that one's reason that they were not racist needed to be converted into an embodied spirit experience? Yeah, and I and I, I struggle with conveying this because, especially when I'm speaking directly to white people, what I try to convey is, from my perspective, you are racist, and that is beside the point, because these systems will function regardless of your individual acts of racism. So what I just described, the way that most of us are raised, white people are raised in terms of passively accepting and absorbing these messages and very few people have actually done the work to undo and overcome that you were probably racist most people have not done the work to undo all of that um but the the bigger message for me is if you weren't let's say you weren't and i was handing out not racist stickers right and you got to walk around with a sticker that said not racist what would that do for anybody other than you who does that benefit other than you, that you got a sticker. So you just get to walk around and live your life as is because you got a sticker that said not racist? That's a, that don't do anything for the public good. That doesn't do anything about racism. That's about you getting to wear a sticker. So I'd like you to focus on not this narcissistic investment in you being seen as a good white person and focus on doing something about racism, actually acting and behaving differently not just walking around with your sticker. I love it. I love it. I, so I have just like two more questions and then I will give you back your afternoon. Thank you so much uh, yeah. for being on the podcast. This is a beautiful, beautiful conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, in understanding this, this weathering that takes place, have you thought about or come across any solution? You know, what is a solution for black and brown people to... Uh, you know, I don't know if you can retighten the rubber band, mm -hmm. um, but ways to reclaim uh, health and, and what's been lost. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Black people are doing this and thinking about this and talking about this through meditation and yoga and other spiritual practices, connecting with spiritual practices that we've lost connections to um, um, over time, I recently put together a, a proposal with a group of Black women to think about how Black women thrive using social media, especially during this period of quarantine, and how mm. we are using spaces like the nice's parties and um, other aspects of social media, the versus battles of you know Erica Baidu and Jill Scott, and how we are finding joy and healing in these spaces, um, and more and more. Black people are getting back to this notion of radical healing um, mm -hmm. and really accepting that Black people and white people in particular have different kinds of work to do. Black people need to be focused on healing. White people should be in the streets marching. We should be home having some tea and, you know, meditating and taking care of ourselves. And not that we completely remove ourselves from this fight, but the healing of our bodies and minds um, and giving ourselves space to 
grieve, connect with our traumas, make sense of those traumas, heal from those traumas, imagine how we are going to thrive, imagine futures. Black people need that space. That's what we need. And I think we need to create that for ourselves. And I think we are, we already are. I'm not saying like this is some new idea. So I think there's a lot of space to think about virtual reality as a tool for black people as well, not just as an educational tool for white people, right? Which is what a thousand cut journey is. Um, and my colleagues, my friends at Hyphen Labs, they did a piece called Neurospeculative Afrofeminism or something like that. I always get the name wrong, but it's a VR piece where you go to a salon and get a neurological makeover, right? <gasps> Your brain rewired. It's beautiful. Um, and this goddess is like leading you through this healing meditative thing. And it's really gorgeous. Um, and they also developed this line of, they designed this line of um, products to go along with the VR. So a scarf that confuses cameras, facial recognition cameras that are trying to register your face. Um, you know, sun, all kinds of stuff that they, that they created. Um, you should look it up, hyphen labs. And this is available, like, like they're doing this work now, like, okay, amazing. Oh, yeah. so they, they showed at the Tribeca Film Festival, I think, a year or two before I did. Yeah, gorgeous work, gorgeous okay. work. Okay, um, so I will research that. I will put it in the show notes for everybody, um, for, my, for, my, for my own personal yeah, yeah. <laughs> desires, but to definitely share. But as far as, like, the future you imagine, like, what is the future you imagine? You know, I was I was I was just talking about this um, in a in another talk last week or earlier this week. I'm losing track of time, but um, where I was saying that so many of us, so many Black people, have been consumed with fighting for basic human rights and expressing um, and capturing our pain and trauma in a way that we were hoping other people would stop and appreciate and consume and understand that so few of us have actually had the opportunity to imagine the future or to design the world that we would like to live in. We're fighting these basic battles. And it, and I know other, like I know there's, there's futurists, there's, you know, designers who have been doing this, but I'm talking about us on average, not being able to do that. And it's only recently that I've started to take the space to start to think about what that means. Um, and I'm in an active space of transition. Like, do I spend my time trying to build Wakanda or do I spend my time trying to integrate into this country that, you know, never really wanted me here in the first place? So, you know, I think we're in this moment of hope and let's fight and let's overcome. But there's, you know, an active part of skepticism that the future I want to design may not be here in this particular space. Um, and if so, where is it? Um, so I'm grateful that I'm turning a corner and starting to imagine these things more, but I don't have an articulate answer because it's not how I've spent most of my time, unfortunately. And I feel robbed that I've had to spend so much time describing pain and trauma instead of imagining joy and, and futures. I experience and live joy all the time. My life is not full of pain and trauma, but my work has focused on pain and trauma and the effects of those things. 
Well, first of all, Courtney, I want to like acknowledge you for just all the amazing work that you've done. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah. And your dedication to not only helping Black people understand themselves better, mm-hmm. um, but then also taking on the labor of assisting, you know, white people in understanding themselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and their whiteness. And, and, and that is, that is a, a you know, a, a definitely a, like a sacrifice at the same time raising uh, a young black boy uh, of your own, which is super lovely. Yeah. Um, could you tell people like where they can connect with you, where they can find out more about A Thousand Cut Journey and any other projects that you're working on? Yeah, so I think just searching for a thousand cut journey will bring up a lot of the the media coverage. We we did a I did a recent segment on CBS News and it's been covered in Forbes and in other spaces, which I think is great that it's getting that kind of exposure. Um, and follow me on Twitter at Courtney Cogburn. Um, mostly talk about racism and then random nonsense as well, but um, that's probably the best place to to find me there and LinkedIn, I guess. Um, again, Courtney, this has been amazing i'm so glad that we were able to connect thank you all so much for listening to this conversation with the amazing dr courtney cogburn i learned so much and i hope you did too if you enjoyed this conversation please share it with your friends shout us out over on instagram at black imagination podcast and let us know what part of the conversation impacted you the most be sure to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts rate and review us on iTunes. And if you'd like to support this work, be sure to click the support link in the show notes. I hate to be cliche and say we're just getting started, but we're just getting started. There are so many more amazing conversations on the horizon. And remember, Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.
Thank you all so much for tuning in today. Uh, I hope this wide-ranging conversation with Casey was entertaining and informative. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. Shout us out over Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast. And let us know what part of the conversation really stuck out to you. Be sure to subscribe wherever you receive your podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. And if you have a few shekels to spare, be sure to click the support link on the show notes. We have so much more great, empowering content on the way. And please, remember to be gracious with yourself. We're all on the path to becoming. And never forget, Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.